0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hear this, all you peoples. Hearken, all you who dwell in the world, you of high degree and low, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and my heart shall meditate on understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb and set forth my riddle upon the harp. All of the readings we have heard this summer have danced around one of the great riddles of our faith, the enchanting and uneasy relationship between the flesh and the spirit. Both Jesus and Paul tell us to turn away from earthly things and to embrace heavenly things. That sounds awfully good in theory, but what in the world does it look like when we are alive on this earth to embrace heavenly things? Is this pie-in-the-sky-ism? Is it permission to kind of trash the earth and do whatever I want, because after all, the material world doesn't matter? Is it a strict Discipline around who we are to love and who we are not. Are we called to renounce our earthly goods and become grouchy ascetics? Is heavenly aspiration, as Paul suggests in the letter to the Colossians, really a scolding laundry list of things to get rid of because you have died to all of this? and God has been angry at your disobedience. Is heaven a matter of obedience? Today's readings, if taken together and read as a meditation, reveal very clearly the difficulty of knowing what it all means because if all three address the question, all three frame it in different ways. So, what are these earthly things? What are the heavenly ones? Let's begin with the gospel, because it seems to be the most straightforward. What good, Jesus asked, does it do the rich landowner to build new barns if his life is going to be demanded of him that very night? The first time I worked this text in depth was at a retreat hosted in 1993 by, not surprisingly, the Ministry of Money. Our group... (laughs) concluded at that retreat that this meant that most obvious of things. You can't take it with you. We all know that you can't take it with you. Did we need Jesus to come and say that? But on that note, I remember one of the most poignant moments of my life. And it was at a deathbed. It was my aunt's. She was like a second mother to me, and this aunt happened to be very, very wealthy. She was la padrona of a ranch in Butte County, mistress of two acres in Marin. She had written a book, traveled the world, and she had fourth row seats at the opera. (laughs) And... As she came to the end of her life, I thought fondly on that life's richness, and I will confess that I was rather proud of myself at that moment, as the poor relation, not to feel at all envious. Death beds have a way of doing this. But in the spirit of charity, I said, you did it, you know. You had a wonderful life, La Padrona. And at that moment, my aunt, who was in a semi-coma, got very agitated, and she shook her head, and she said, No! And I was literally stopped dead in my tracks. It was as if Jesus himself had come to tell me something. Now, when she died, because I was a niece and not a child, I didn't receive any of the rather considerable material inheritance that got passed out. But I did receive a spiritual one. And at that point, my life was very, very different. It was almost as if those fourth row seats in the opera had entered my own heart. And for the very first time in my life, I could sing. Deathbeds, you see do change things. Jesus not only knew that deathbeds change things, he staked his very life upon it. This very night your life is being demanded of you was not for Jesus a parable. It was what he, in fact, lived. The end of life matters. And one of the greatest gifts of the end of life is that if only for an afternoon... Suddenly, all of us are absolutely equal face-to-face in front of a divine mystery. There was a Roman poet who said this very, very well. I tried to read the Latin at 8. I'm just going to do the English transition at 10, which is, pale death calls with equal ring at the pauper's hut and the tower of the king. And if you have ever sat with someone that you have loved as they have died, you will know the sheer power of what happens at that point. It's almost as if all life becomes spiritual as we do the sacred work of saying goodbye. And if we are Christians, we know, unlike all those grouches in Ecclesiastes, we're not really saying goodbye. We're just holding the door open for someone as they step through into the next world which gets me back to my riddle. This teaching of Jesus is only secondarily about what you can take and what you can't take with you. It is far more about all the negative emotions that surround the transfer. Think of this, in both Ecclesiastes and in the Gospel, we have people fighting over the inheritance. The whole idea of getting something for nothing is irresistible. And so so kind of entitled do people get about all of this stuff that we are witnessing a fascinating phenomenon in our own society even as we speak. Statistical studies are showing that in the face of earthly matters, Americans are becoming more and more anxious as a nation. And last year, one in four Americans reported emotional illnesses. And yet, in the face of all of this, our self-esteem esteem scores have topped the chart. This is borne out also in an upcoming movie, Waiting for Superman, in which, in a list of 30 developed countries, American children scored 25th in math, 21st in science, but came out a whopping number one in self Confidence. Okay. Uh, Is all of this confidence, is this earthly or is it heavenly? Is it I'm going to will, life is wonderful for me, or am I placing my hope in things unseen? And this is where we get into this earthly heavenly problem because although Paul calls passion, desire, and greed earthly things, They are, in fact, very spiritual. They may be inspired by earthly things, but we feel those in the gut. And that's why I would like to propose a slightly different way of looking at the whole problem. Rather than flesh and spirit, which I think makes people hate their bodies and and have afraid to get married or all kinds of things, let's talk about positive spirituality and negative spirituality. The positive spirituality is that which brings us together. The negative spirituality is that which drives us apart. And I think that you can actually use that that set of terms for most of the stuff you're going to read in Paul, and it's much less dualistic. So let's see what this looks like, and we will take as our example money, not because I've picked it, but because that's what everybody's worried about in today's readings. Money has, and particularly in our world, it has no independent existence whatsoever. It only has power over us because we have agreed that this is the standard by which we are going to assign things their value. But as the arbiter of value, money is exciting. It conveys power. It conveys status. And just think of that moment when you've had some, all the possibilities that get suggested when it appears. When something is this powerful, it is very easy to lose ourselves in its allure. And I was fascinated in the hymn, they talked about the allure of doing the wrong thing, Uh, and that it is. Remember that money itself has no value save as we give it value. And especially in the electronic age, it's only a transaction. It's a relationship. And lots of things are relationships. The apple in the Garden of Eden was a relationship. It gave us both knowledge, but it gave us the ability to misuse that knowledge. It was both the answer and the question. Likewise with money. Positive spirituality that brings us together. Negative spirituality that drives us apart. Which is why Jesus says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, possessions really are the earthly thing. They're the stuff. And Jesus is saying it's the feelings that are much more powerful than the stuff itself. And if you notice, the brothers, when faced with the inheritance, get involved in negative spirituality because they're arguing over who gets it. Now, that being said, I'm not going to be St. Paul and Hectorus about greed because greed, being desire, is nothing more than misplaced love. And to continue, economy doesn't just come out of nowhere. Economy is one of the most important words in all Christian theology. Not economy in the narrow sense that we talk about it in this country, but economy as the basis of all relationship. Remember, it comes from the Greek word for household. And in the economy of God, all of us are precious. Because here is the most obvious theological statement of all. In fact, it's so obvious I completely missed it at eight. Jesus died, okay? And when someone dies, they leave an inheritance. The inheritance that Jesus left us is one we don't need to argue over because we all get it in equal measure. And that inheritance is new life. It is eternal life, and it is also the assurance that we don't need to be grouchy or afraid when we come to that door that is death. Now, the Buddhists talk about all this stuff, too, and they talk about it a little differently, and it's for this reason that I find Buddhist teaching so helpful to my understanding of what Jesus was trying to say. The Buddhists teach that the root of all suffering is attachment. And the moment that I get into a spirituality of wanting stuff outside myself, whether it be experiences, relationship, houses, a facelift, you name it, I am bound to suffer because I don't have it. And whether or not I get the stuff, everyone around me is going to suffer in the process of my wanting it because like... the owner of the barns, I'm putting my needs ahead of everybody else's. And that's the whole thing about this farmer and his McMansion barns. He is full of himself and his needs and his desires at the very moment that God has something more interesting in store for him. Continuing with the Buddhist theme, four years ago, At an international conference the man who has probably had to let go of more than any of us his holiness the dalai lama said compassion care for others is not a luxury it is a necessity for human beings to survive at this year's version of that conference the mind and life institutes if you know it it was dedicated to compassion in economics And William George of Harvard Business School spoke about compassionate, authentic leadership. In his view, compassionate, authentic leadership is what is essential to a healthy society. He sees the global financial mess not as an economic failure, but as a spiritual failure, where people's desire for more and more satisfaction derived from materialism, led down a path of greed and destruction. Again, not I'm not gonna have to, greed and destruction is simply misplaced love, taking too much to myself, and loving all the natural resources of the world that I just love them to pieces. So, Bill asked the Dalai Lama, how do you think we can develop more leaders? And His Holiness replied, I believe it comes from the training of inner values, which probably you all know. But are you really convinced that more training in inner values is going to get us where we want to go? Is it, do we really believe that with proper thought we can make education and other fields develop more compassionate people? Well, I'm a teacher, so I've staked my life on the hope that helping children to be more compassionate is the answer. But there's something else here, and that ties in with the readings. You notice that the guy, that both the guy with the barns and the guy in Ecclesiastes is really grouchy about somebody's going to get my stuff after I'm gone. Well, you know what? Being a teacher is all about giving my stuff away so that somebody can really benefit from it after I am gone and for me to let go. And because the theme today is so much about letting go of our attachment to stuff, the whole church says, preach on stewardship, Mm -hmm. which is what I should have done if I'd been a good person. But, (laughs) But I'm a storyteller, and I'm a teacher. And what I really want to tell you is that each one of us, we're all part of this really fabulous story that did not begin with us, it's not going to end with us, and our task on this earth is to produce the very best chapter for that story that our lives can produce. And if we do that, we can give the chapter to our children and those who will come after us, but the other thing, because that chapter is totally immaterial and, doesn't, and didn't cost us a thing except living with integrity and living with courage and all that cool stuff, I can promise you that you can take with you. God knows what God's doing when God says, let's go, and let's go, because God knows what we really need. Amen.